Magic Without Fears Hermetic Podcast. I'm your host, Frater R.C. For more and exclusive episodes, visit magicwithoutfears.com. Thank you for your support. Welcome to Magic Without Fears 2021 First Roundtable, our esoteric roundtable. Welcome. Thanks all for being here. That is the end of my formal introduction, because as you know from the podcast, as Zemi does know and Celeste knows very well, yeah, formality is not what I'm aiming at in my presentations to a culture. So be as chill as you want, have a drink, have a smoke, do uh, astral evocations as, as you wish. But yeah, no, it's great to awesome. be talking with uh, awesome scholars and magicians like you. And we're going to talk about some things like that magicians don't always talk about. We discussed some things like aliens and entheogens and uh, not often, actually, I think the alien thing is an interesting one because magicians don't often or always comment on that thing. So we're gonna to touch on that and everything else in our domains. And do you guys wanna start off by just going around and telling our viewers who you are and uh, a little bit about your background and practices? How about Jack? Sure, that sounds great. I'll go first. Thank you for letting me be on the round table. It's great to meet you, RC. Uh, my name is Jack Grail. Um, I write and I, and I do ritual work. Uh, I wrote a book called The Hecatean. I'm a devotee of Hecate. I teach courses on the Greek magical papyri and on uh, Hecatean magic um, with the Blackthorn School. I have uh, a second edition of my book, should be coming out soon. Um, and uh, I've got I'm also going to be teaching two new classes this year, one on uh, the the uh, Iliad and the Odyssey, and also uh, a, a class on on my own book uh, that will be coming out in a in a month or two. So I was really pleased to be invited on the show, and i'm I'm glad to be here with you all. Thank you. All right, Reverend Zemi. Who art thou? All right. Hello. <laughs> I am Reverend Zemi Emi Jahuti. I'm the founder of the Church of Flesh and Feather. Uh, I have two books available with Thayan Publishing, uh, The Book of Flesh and Feather, and then The Litanies of Thoth is currently open for pre-order. Uh, I teach a class with Blackthorn School as well on ancient Egyptian magic. Um, I just kind of almost do whatever I want and make it happen. So <laughs> thanks for having me. Awesome. Celeste. Hi, what's up? Uh, I am never sure how to introduce myself on these things. I don't, I don't have a book on magic out, but um, Wiser hit me up if you want to hear me rant about things in, in print. <laughs> I'm available. Um, <laughs> but uh, I do have a, I'm a poet as well as a occultist and a magician. So I have a, a short poetry book out through uh, Porkbelly Press that you can order. It's called Lucid, a micro memoir, and it touches on lucid dreaming and tulpas and tulpamancy. Um, tulpas is kind of the thing, I think, that I've started to get asked to talk about a whole bunch. So that sort of seems to be currently my niche podcast asking me to come on and rant into the abyss about uh, thought forms and tulpas and egregores. So that's sort of a uh, a line of fascination at the moment, but um, I'm kind of all over the place. I took Jack's course last summer, which I loved. Um, and I'm just, you know, in a state of constant expansion, but um, I'm on Instagram. That's where I do all, most of my rantings. You can find me on the gram at Celeste Mott. Awesome. 
Samuel David, it's 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 exciting to see you after just listening to your Glitch Bottle podcast on Patreon just just today. So, tell us Thank about you yourself. Yeah, cheers. Brother. Well, I have a book, an upcoming book with Anathema Publishing called Rod and Ring, an initiation into an esoteric uh, Mesopotamian tradition. That's not the exact title. I can't think of the title right now because uh, I feel like I'm in front of a classroom, <laughs> a classroom <laughs> of total strangers. So uh, yeah, let me get back on track here. I am a Mesopotamian polytheist, an insufferable academic, um, which has been an insult hurled at me and I wear with, with pride and honor. Yeah, man, how, how else can it be done? How else can it be done exactly? <laughs> I, that sort of actually is a nice lead into our first of our highly structured formal roundtable that will not violate any liminal breaches or transgressions in any way. That doesn't really make sense. But whatever. Um, what was I going to say? I'm not even stoned yet. We're here. We're off to a great start. Um, <laughs> uh, not yet. What was it you mentioned about? Uh, anyway. Oh, that leads us into the, the, the topic, Dion Fortune. Dion Fortune, who we all know and love, right? She famously said, slightly ironically, that there's no room for authority in occultism. And I think it's, it's a statement that needs no explanation, but a lot could be said about it. And it seems to be quite a hot topic these days, uh, the issues of <sighs> titles, you know, and uh, leadership gurus, solipsism, narcissism, all these sort of issues that come with all of all of it. And uh, so let's talk about that because um, I mean, I was 21, 22 when I was in the Golden Dawn and had on my shoulders the responsibility of sometimes expelling people, even if they were 30, 40, 50, 60. And I was like 21 year old punk. And now a word from our sponsors. While we cannot control whether any ads get put in the spots allocated, we thank you for listening to those that do since they help keep this project alive. You can also get ad-free content and bonus content and videos and a private webpage by subscribing exclusively to magicwithoutfears.com for only a couple dollars a week or $6 a month or 50 for the year. It helps a lot, plus you get emails about other exclusive things. Thank you very much having to expel someone from a group they'd been in for years. That was weird. That was a weird experience to be in. But like, you have no choice. Like, you, you have to do that sometimes, especially under certain certain circumstances. I'm, but, I'm curious as to why. Why do people get thrown? Why would you have thrown people out occasionally? Um, yeah, what did they do? Uh, say a frater, a brother, you know, you know, grabbing a girl's ass in the hallway outside the temple in between classes. And when asked about it, said she, I could tell she wanted it. There's an example of, uh, especially if that person's had multiple warnings or infractions mm -hmm. such as that, 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 that'll be one. That one, that was an interesting case. That person didn't actually get expelled because of they made some, paid some money to someone else. And that was a bad thing. But that was mm -hmm. the end times of, of my involvement there <laughs> um, towards the end. I did my best to keep Temple Tahuti alive and well. I'm very proud to be a Tahitian. I actually got my little Tahuti up there. See, see, Reverend? I do. I'm in front of the shrine of flesh and feather you've got the full meal deal but yeah that so that's an example of, of issues of authority and uh, it's something i i was fascinated by all, all the learning i got in in mainstream seminary about 
how churches deal with this stuff. It's, it's a lot, there's a lot to it, but I'm very, very curious about all of your thoughts and perspectives on any aspect of that as leaders of groups, uh, as leaders of thought and as teachers, it's something, the issue of authority and occultism, or at least perceived authority and everything that comes with it is inescapable. So if anyone has a thought, speak up. We can go around the table or round and rapid fire. I guess it would depend on how you define the occult. I mean, uh, Sam, Jack, and I come from uh, praxis that was full of priests and teachers, uh, people who very much held the information sort of over other people. Uh, then, of course, the divine is also an authority as well. Um, I would say that that is not true. Authority is very uh, necessary in the occult and that way. Interesting. I'll, I'll add something that I think provides context too. Much of, I understand where the statement comes from because everything about this work is internal, personalized, individual, and it's deeply personal one's apprehension of the divine or the unseen world and our ability to connect with it. So the last thing people need if they think they're succeeding is someone saying to them, you're doing it wrong, like a slate article, you know, or you're the wrong gender for that, or well, you don't, you're not born there, or you know, you didn't take my class, therefore you can't be having the results you're claiming. That's the kind of thing that gives authority in the occult a bad name people who discount other people's ex genuine spiritual experiences and successes by undercutting them and reducing their confidence to where they feel like they can't have a legitimate spiritual experience unless this person give them uh, permission to have it, right? So that I think is the basis for statements like that when you're not dealing with a formal organization, obviously if you're dealing with a formal, you know, fraternal magical organization or a formal priesthood or a formal coven even, then there's going to be a hierarchy, whether it's attenuated or, or flat, you know, but, but I do understand the impulse of saying, no one has a right to tell you you're doing it wrong when it comes to this sort of stuff, which is often a personalized esoteric work. However, you know, I will say too, the opposite is true. If you find a good mentor who validates your experience and says, no, no, you're on the right track. No, no, that what you think was a failure was a success. No, no, you, you don't understand. You're too, you can't see the forest for the trees. You're doing better than you know. You have more aptitude for this than you think. You just need to, you know, expand your, your expectations or, or look at it from a different angle. The right person can really be empowering for people who are insecure about their own abilities or who feel like uh, I'm not magical enough to be part of this world or I, I'm not like the kid in sixth sense so I can't do spirit work or whatever. A good teacher ideally validates the skills you already have and provides you with context and a perspective that helps you, you know, continue on the path you're going and, and, and be more confident and be more successful. So the real question is, you know, when we talk about leaders, 
and presumably we're talking about teachers or gurus or mentors or priests or high priestesses or you know you know the, whatever do they empower and validate and improve the lives of the people who give them their time and sometimes money or do they increase those people's dependence by mm -hmm. deepening their insecurities by making them trust themselves less you know and i think you can almost draw a line and divide them into two groups do the people increase your own you know ability to trust in your intuition and your expectation so you feel empowered and confident or do they reduce your sense of what you can do and, and what you can see so that you're entirely reliant on their permission to participate in this world and that's i think the the flip side of the coin for me the you know that was awesome jack that was was eloquent man that was that was great any other samuel what do you what do you think um exactly what jack said uh <laughs> he stole the words right out of my mouth could, could anyone disagree with what jack said yeah <laughs> <laughs> i'm sure someone will and they'll write a, a heated think oh, yeah. piece on a well-known blog that we won't discuss <laughs> we won't mention by name um Jack's got his hand up. What's he going to say? Build on what I say too is what I just said applies across the board, not just in occultism. You know what I mean? I came from yeah. an arts background in college. And anyone who's been part of that world knows there's two sorts of teachers. The ones who encourage you and, you know, they might correct you, but they say, no, no, your, your eye is good. You know, your hand is better than you think. Your impulse is valid. You're not trusting yourself enough. Go further with this. Trust yourself, trust yourself. And whether you're a graphic artist or a performance artist or a musician, that increases your own confidence, your own ability. That's the kind of mentor everyone needs as an artist. But there's another type of teacher that when you do your best, they undercut you and they say, you must have known that was no good, right? And of course you say, yes, because we're all insecure. And they say, you're still not getting it. And, and you believe them because all of us secretly believe we're shitty at, at what we love. And so, and, and, but then ironically, it increases your respect for them because the more they call you out, the more they validate your secret fear that you are no good and that they're so much better than you'll ever be. And, and those sorts of people get a guru type, you know, uh, thing about them because everyone, the more they criticize people, the more people respect them, right? Mm -hmm. But it's two totally different paradigms. And that's not to say, that you can't sometimes call people out and say, you know, what, what you're doing doesn't make sense. Or that, you know, what, why do you think this works? You know, you can still, you don't have to be a cheerleader. The point is when you look at another human being doing their best to express the artistic or spiritual impulse within them, you, you know, there's always something you can validate. There's always something you can encourage. You can find something to make them understand they're capable of success. Are you doing that or are you consistently, you know, um, sort of maiming them to the point where they have lost all belief in their own aptitude for this work? So, you know, I, I do understand what Dion Fortune meant, but I think a lot of it comes down to the attitude of the authority and whether it's empowering the people that give them their faith or whether it's just a cult of personality, you know, when they're aggrandizing themselves by making everyone else feel like a neophyte. I think that that, like that 
point there, Jack, is is where we run into problems, maybe through a contemporary lens, because social media, right, and the yeah. internet has leveled everybody, you know, it's not that hard to yeah. start a bunch of social media accounts and make it look like you are this incredibly <laughs> um, <laughs> learned, amazing, um, you know, authority figure. And a lot of it is narcissism. And I, mean, I think there's also the pressure of everybody needs to have a side hustle. You know, it's yeah. so, there's so much pressure now to, in any field, I would argue, but I see it a lot in the spiritual community and the occult. Oh, you're into this thing? Well, then make it your niche and make it your hustle and make it your living. And, um, you know, don't worry if you don't know as much as you think you do. Just get yourself out there, set yourself up as the authority. Um, and, you know, yeah. I've had people say that to me. Like, I mean, obviously, this is my full time job, I'm a full time reader, but people trying to kind of push me out the door to teach other people things. And I'm not at the point where I feel like, I'm ready to do that yet. But you'll get this sort of pushback of like, oh no, you've got to, like, you've got to make yourself sound like you're the authority. You've got to brand yourself as the guru. Like if you don't do that, you're fucking up and you're not, um, you're not playing the game correctly. And I find that dangerous. And then of course that intersects with narcissistic personality types. And so we run into some problems. Well, I'll add this too. You're a full-time reader in New Orleans, correct, Celeste? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I you're, so this is different from being a full-time reader in my town, which has 100,000 people in it. You're competing with hundreds of other self-proclaimed psychics and spiritualists and witches and, and everything, and mm -hmm. you still are doing it full-time. Where, where do you practice? Remind me. Um, do you, are you with a, in my are you house. With an organization? Okay. Nope. I couldn't remember. <laughs> yeah, it's just me. Uh, I worked for a couple of places for a while, but then I struck out on my own because I don't play nicely with others. I prefer to do yeah. my own thing. <laughs> How did you, but that's a successful business you've built uh, with mm -hmm. a, in a huge amount of competition. How do you feel that you accomplished that in such a competitive environment? It's a good question. Uh, it's an awesome that's question. A good, it is a good question. It's not, it is an awesome question. And I don't know that I have a good answer for it, but I think like I'm in a weird place as an occultist and as a magician where I have been practicing for a long time since I was a teenager, but largely, you know, largely independently, largely solitary. And I need to feel like I have something totally unique and well-researched behind me. You know, I'm coming from that academic background as well, which I know a lot of people here also are coming from. And if I don't have my <laughs> you know, list of cited sources, I don't wanna be going out there and positioning myself as any kind of authority to teach anybody. So it's weird. I don't, I don't mind that though. And I think that's okay. I think we have to, I think practitioners generally have to admit when they don't know things and when they're not ready for things. And maybe, maybe you don't have the maturity or the skill or the research behind you to put yourself on that on that pedestal and say, yeah, come to me, I can teach you. Um, I don't know. I kind of avoided answering your question there. Skillfully, <laughs> I feel like. <laughs> That's you know, my I just, answer. <laughs> I just have, you know, there's that old practice of making people wait for a long time in, in mm -hmm. spiritual discipleship and learning that's 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 definitely something still alive and well and valid to a point i think i mean when i started getting public it was just on a, i put up a little patreon and i j basically made made everyone who joined it wait a year before i did anything 
So some people came mm. and went, which I mean, I don't know why I did that, but it was just felt, <laughs> I don't know how, I don't, I don't understand my own path at times, but it led to much bigger things, but it also led to much more serious people. Same with like the podcast. I thought, what if I'm completely myself from the get-go and even absurd and obscene in, in ways I would be if you knew me as a really good friend, what will that lead to? Maybe it'll lead to like more dedicated, interested, earnest listeners rather than just a large scale pop thing. And I was right about that. So it's, it's interesting about how putting up some barriers or blinds or dissuading people to, to follow you is not such a bad thing. I don't know. It's an undeveloped thought. So if you have any, if any of you have anything to say to that, <laughs> go ahead. We've gotten wild already. <sighs> yeah, I don't know. I mean, I guess that that does intersect a little bit with this idea of marketability, which I think, again, intersects with the idea of authority in the contemporary occult community, which is like, do you want to be marketable to everybody? Do you want to position yourself as some kind of expert with a wide enough umbrella of whatever it is that you're teaching that, you know, hundreds of thousands of people are following you and you have a million TikTok followers or whatever, and you're making your 60 second videos, dancing to mall cat Doma about whatever and pointing to things. I have no, no shade on TikTok people. I'm on TikTok. I'm too old for it, but I'm there uh, doing my best. But, you know, do you want to do that or do you want to hone down? And I think one of the things that really drew me to Jack's course, you know, and I found out about Jack's course because my friend Juwan Koo, uh, who was also a very successful TikToker, um, had taken it and was talking about how great it was. Um, And I liked that it was a niche, you know, this was not someone who was saying, I know everything about the Western esoteric tradition, come to me and I'll teach you all of these things. It was, you know, here's this course that's compressed into a particular period of time um you know it's it's i think whatever it's 13 weeks um it's this specific material and this is what i'm an expert in and this is what i'm going to teach you and i think like again you can kind of bisect the community you do have people teachers who are positioning themselves as an authority in these niche areas um which to me is perhaps a little bit more believable and attractive to me as a student and as someone who wants to learn. And then you have these people who are kind of going that more guru, almost like spirituality, occult and self-help kind of space. And it's so broad that I kind of wonder, what are we learning here? Oh, I started to throw shade there a little bit and I apologize. We, we know what's up. <laughs> I don't know if I know what's up, but you know, what oh, you were you saying <laughs> actually made me think about something, uh, Samuel, that you mentioned on the glitch bottle that'll come out soon, I'm sure, it, about the uh, sort of Zachariah Sitchin crowd of Akkadian tr- interpretation and translation uh, being upheld as, as this authority, leading to, of course, these, you know, strained interpretations, shall we say. Um, but partially as a result of the fact that people reading him often don't realize that Akkadian can be read, that there are scholars at the museums and in the universities who study this. I was just two years ago, I was at a lecture on Akkadian on the issue of magic and witchcraft and legality from a new tablet because this guy found a chunk that had broken off an old Akkadian tablet, wrote his PhD on it. When I went to the lecture, these people are reading and studying this stuff. But so there's an interesting contrast there um, with the Sitchin being the overwhelming authority in the popular world but really not holding any water anymore in the academic world that kind of 
tension of, of power and, and knowledge is something you could probably speak to, especially in your field, which is. Oh, yeah, absolutely. That absolutely. Stuff and I think uh, I think a lot of it has to do with the fact that these uh, sensational topics are are what draws people in. Um, everyone wants to have this this notion or everyone wants to hold on to this notion that ancient history is like Star Wars a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away. Um, however, the truth of the matter is much more mundane. There's this preconceived notion that all of these untranslated texts uh, detail the, the, uh, the evolutionary changes that, that mankind went through and they're completely undecipherable and no one knows what they mean. However, a lot of these texts are like Excel spreadsheets. So you're looking at laundry lists, you're looking at grocery lists, you're looking at inventory. I mean, granted there, there are mythological texts that have been codified. There's uh, ritual that's been codified, liturgy that's been codified, history. But the, the religion, or rather the, the language that later informed the religion that codified the religion, uh, that language initially started as a means of keeping inventory. So I doubt these mysterious relics that, that people claim to, to hold all the secrets of, of the universe are really um, as sensational as people want to believe. Where am I going with this? Um, <laughs> uh, I, I think though that when faced with, with the information that you know, Zachariah Sitchin and Eric Von Daniken and uh, pretty much anyone else who is featured on the History Channel's Ancient Aliens program that uh, I hope one day we'll see, <laughs> see its eventual end because it's become <laughs> completely speculative. <laughs> it's, it's just, it's completely off the rails. When I was a kid and I, I read about stuff like this, I was like, this is so cool. And the earlier seasons, I was like, yeah, this is speculative. I, I can get behind that. But now it's like, balls to the wall we're going off the rails here just like i am with my answer to this question um, and <laughs> Wasn't uh, it you that said you didn't want to touch on ancient aliens and here you are it was me who said i didn't want to touch on ancient aliens and here i am touching on ancient aliens clearly <laughs> clearly it's a sore subject and uh i need to write a a fevered essay on my blog he says regarding that round table yeah but sam raises a good a good issue which is when when the image of you know the in the popular imagination when the image of egyptian spirituality is katy perry's dark horse video oh good when, god when the image <laughs> when the image in the popular imagination of sumerian spirituality is the god zool in the ghostbusters movie in the phantom pyramid in the refrigerator Ooh. how do you when you're trying to approach people with a, a traditional, you know, current of spirituality that you've bothered to research and, you know, and, and develop, how do you present it to them in a way that could compete with Ghostbusters or Ancient Aliens or Katy Perry? And there's, I think there's a dual temptation. One, to go nuclear and talk about, you know, 
how how awful everything they like is, which is kind of a turnoff to people that like. I mean, I like that video, and I, I well, like first books. of all, Jack, that is why people call me a literal academic, uh, an insufferable mansplainer. Uh, let's see what other what other badges of honor do I do I have? Let me look at my my list of trophies. Uh, no, it's it's absolutely mind blowing the things that people double down on. Um, my personal favorite though is, you know, again, back to the, the aliens thing, you know, you're worshiping aliens, right? And my response to that is usually, and it's especially with people who uh, are also in the, the reconstruction current. So you get this a lot with heathens, uh, no shade to heathens though. Uh, but the response to them is, is usually, so if I'm worshiping aliens, who are you worshiping? And that's when the conversation stops because Nobody wants to admit that <laughs> Thor is an alien or that Odin is an alien or that Freya is an alien, but it's okay to say that brown people in the Middle East who built ziggurats and, and amazing palaces were influenced by aliens. You would think that if aliens helped jumpstart human civilization, that they would have given us more longer lasting building materials instead of mud bricks. That's all I have to say about that. You know, it's an interesting. Um, it's you're 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 a funny guy. Uh, you know, I just did a piece on the podcast, a two hour thing on the Sumerian Assyrian roots of the tree of life, because you know, uh, Judy people often in in Jewish Kabbalah, uh, especially in Madonna version, often talk about oh. how it's, <laughs> well, in, let's say in people in Kabbalah sometimes acu- uh, criticize pagans for polytheizing their monotheistic mysticism but when you look yeah, at the Assyrian roots of the tree it was a polytheistic thing that the hebrews probably incorporated while during the babylonian captivity and well they were in babylon for quite a long right. time so they and, were you know probably something would rub off yeah it initiated into those those cults and those practices in their long times there and um they already had sort of a some of those ideas within the Israelite community from that they had extracted from their formation out of Egypt but so you you know really is if you're taking Kabbalah if pagans out there if you're taking Kabbalah and like Yates did making it Irish or doing whatever you want with (laughs) any you you are in a sense going back and resuscitating the original Assyrian tree of life which is the oldest culture it's the oldest root we have to it and I'm so glad your glitch bottle episode I heard just today instead of before I did that two-part thing because I was totally calling him Ia not ya the whole time i didn't know I hey was. it's okay as yeah, I, as long as uh as long as you repent of your sin your grievous sin and i thought about and it you, and it's it's yeah. good that i didn't know that because <laughs> had i actually called him ya the whole time people read listeners would have been confused who were look following along with the text um and i would have had to address it so now i get to do a whole follow-up episode maybe you'll guest on it and i can address my my foibles but it's not my specialty but i'm fascinated by that stuff i never specialized in it because like you said you end up studying mostly uh tabulations of grain transports lots and lots of tabulations of grain transports yeah maybe a, a list of sheep and oxen but yeah grain beer more grain more beer so this is we, this is sort of a wonderful transition to uh, the the topic that Zemi and I talked about, uh, including which is, which was aliens. 
um, because apparently you three uh, live in quite a uh, alien rich environment, shall we say? And uh, and Zemi, you 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 said you had some things to say about about modern the modern human experience of aliens is fascinating to me. And I was an anti-aliens person up until a couple of years ago. You know, with the whole government saying it's real, that changed some things, and large amounts of DMT changed some things for me. So <laughs> I've never had an alien experience, and I'm fascinated by them, and I'm fascinated by the area of the land, the topography, and the history that you three all live in. And do you want to kick us off, leading from uh, from 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 our brief touch on Samuel's ancient aliens? We're going to call them Samuel's ancient aliens from now on. No, please, Just God, hashtag, no. hashtag, please, um, God. You want to no. take us into a real conversation about what's re- what we really? I don't know. I'm passing it over to you, brother. Oh man, I don't know. Uh, I don't know where to take this conversation in this context. Have you had a Have you had an alien experience where you live or in your in your area? Yeah, I've seen a lot. Uh, that was what I did, more or less constantly for two or three years with my wife. We would wow. go out and we would track weird lights and things, and uh, or I would collect stories from people just around. In my uh, mundane life, I'm a folklore columnist. So it was uh, kind of my job. So there are these lights popping up here and there all over the place, right? They're even showing up here in British Columbia. It's, it's, it's a ton of them, like crazy amounts of balls of light shooting around the skies. To me, that's something occultists, every, all of us should be interested in or talking about or coming up with far-fetched stone theories on at least, if only for our own amusement, not yeah i mean we've got records of these things happening for at the very least for decades um i don't know why everybody i think it just kind of merged too quickly into the realm of conspiracy most people just ignore it i mean soft soft disclosure has been happening over the course of three years and more or less nobody has paid any attention to it so do, do you think do you think those these balls of light these orbs are 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 multi-dimensional or do you think there's some in between I wonder if sometimes there's an in-between thing of dimensions that we just we're just not there yet for understanding this stuff I don't know I, I have more way just I'm, I only have questions so if you have any <laughs> thoughts or answers just please um, share well, your thoughts one of the naturist principles is all things are overlapping uh, I personally believe that they are sort of uh, interdimensional. If you think about the physicality, if you think about what our bodies are made out of, it's mostly just a whole bunch of empty space and the non-physical electro electric uh, pulses, basically. I think that there are probably ways for things to move in between those as well, other non-physical things. If you've ever seen uh, the movie Buckaroo Banzai, across the eighth dimension uh i think it's probably just exactly like that hmm. whereabouts Sam- are you all the three of you i'm just curious i'm like we don't have any of that stuff happen in new orleans weirdly uh i mean i'm not saying it never happens but ufo sightings all that stuff very uncommon in new orleans itself and i have talked to other people who are ufologists and they say there's like a bubble over this city and something's happening magically, spiritually in New Orleans that incubates against that stuff. But I'd love to know where y'all at 
that this is happening. I know Arizona is huge for for UFO sightings. We're in central Illinois, so we have the Mississippi River on one side, we have the Illinois River, we have the Sangamon River. So we've all we've got all of these these confluences of water. And Mm. if you look at the folklore and and Zemi can elaborate on this more, um, it seems as though wherever the water goes, these stories go with them. So if you Mm. overlay a lap of the United States, uh, 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 with the United States' topography and waterways, you can also overlay onto that map areas where UFO sightings or unidentified, you know, whatever you want to call them now, aerial phenomenon has been seen. Uh And just from what I have seen anecdotally, it seems like there is some sort of, of connection between this aerial phenomenon and waterways and, you know, uncharted areas, so to speak. Hmm. I've I've heard, oh, go ahead. Sorry. Well, we also just simply benefit from vast amounts of empty space as well. Mm. So I'm sure that these things are happening over New Orleans, but uh, most people's attention are prob- is probably on the street. Whereas if you walk through the prairies of Illinois, uh, yeah. you know, you're more likely to watch, you know, to see something like this happening. I do yeah, think we you- interact with it. Um, I do think that it is, uh, if you've ever re- uh, read The Eighth Tower by John Keel, uh, the guy who wrote The Mothman Prophecies, I do think that we can interact with these things and they can with us as well. So I'm curious, Zemi, so some people are saying that these are just man-made things by you know, a foreign government or, well, I guess, or your, you, your own because you guys, for me, a foreign government, you guys, um, Canada represent. Uh, and, but to me, that seems outlandish that, that these, all these balls of light UFO sightings are, are some secret government, whether us, you, China, or something like that. I mean, it just seems, that seems too crazy. Is that your feeling on that? Well, I don't trust anybody with a billion dollars. So Sammy, I'm gonna let you in on a little secret. You probably don't want to trust me because I won the lottery and uh, I'm not gonna share it. So <laughs> as yeah. you were. The military industrial complex benefits from from most people not knowing what's going on. So I do think that there's probably it's just it's simply uh, you know war machines being constructed and piloted and tested maybe even things that are far beyond our understanding even uh but i do think also some of it is uh um um like an i don't know what the word is like uh just a normal occurrence i guess Hmm. what about the uh the theory that some of these things are some kind of phenomena that is choosing to show itself to us as, you know, space aliens, UFOs, but in, say, you know, the 15th century might have been presenting itself as the Fae, yeah, that's what or believe, what have you. That's what I believe it is. That's what I think that a mm-hmm. lot of what we do in general is. It's just a, a force beyond ourselves 
manifesting in a way that is familiar or mm-hmm. not threatening, uh, but it, you know, as it exists for thousands of years, it changes as, you know, our life cycle is just several decades. Uh, it stays the same or evolves differently. Um, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I came across that idea a year or so ago, 18 months ago, and instantly there was a resonance there for me. I was like, this makes a lot of sense, actually. And then I started reading Passport to Magonia, some of those other books, and I was like, yep, all right. (laughs) This tracks, you know, this makes sense. Samuel, are there actual spaceship-like things in in Sumerian uh, art, in your opinion? I mean, I've seen, well, all the, we've all seen all the images that everyone We've all seen everybody. the images, yeah. yeah. The, the winged disc with the quote-unquote uh, ancient astronaut piloting it, which is really a god in his glory uh, suspended in the air with his, uh, his divine wings. Uh, looking at it from an historical iconography standpoint, no, because the gods were depicted in a specific manner and the manner in which they are depicted is what we see in these in these uh, in these reliefs. So, you know, I I think that in order to understand uh, those reliefs, we have to look at the culture. We have to look at the significance of their symbology, uh, their artistic expression. Because what you know what we would see as an airplane to them, there would be no comprehension of that. They couldn't. They wouldn't comprehend what what they were seeing. So they would use some sort of, of poetic language. I don't know. I don't like to speculate too much because I think that uh, you you run the risk of making a fool of yourself. And I already do that <laughs> enough. So <laughs> I tend to take things at face value and move on. I don't like to, to look into the, uh, or in, intuit what uh, that, that symbolism is or, or you know, anything outside of the the scope of what academia has already informed us so yeah I that's just my answer say, my roundabout I, answer i just want to throw out there as a footnote i think intuit is the best neologism of our generation did you all because you all know that it's actually a new word from our generation essentially and i think that's awesome i just wanted to say that footnote <laughs> um as well, for all the new words that we're creating all the time jack i i feel like i have to ask you what you think about aliens you seem like such a wise man i mean you have glasses and a beard and oh oh wait that's all of us i have glasses and a beard are you saying that i'm a fool (laughs) i have glasses and a beard i do have glasses but i'm not wearing them i don't have a beard though i have one hair that keeps growing out of my chin the older i get it's not quite a beard might get there one day we'll see the the older the, the difference here rc is i'm the oldest one present and as you get older and begin falling apart physically, you have to up your game <laughs> stylistically. These fashionable glasses I'm wearing came from Walgreens and cost $24, you know, and the beard is meant to cover serious weight gain. So between the two of them, I, I appreciate the fact my, my attempt to appear wise and, um, you know, scholarly is paying off because it's a relatively cheap gambit. And so far it's worked pretty well. So I'm glad, I'm glad. Your chicanery is masterful, brother. Yeah. <laughs> right. Um, yeah. I, I love, I love, the, I love the, I have a personal relation with Hikati since playing her in grade eight in Macbeth. 
um, I wanted to be one of the witches, but the teacher said, uh, you're not a girl, so you can't be a witch and cast me as Hikati. You can't be a, a witch because you're not a girl, but you can be a goddess a god. in liminal spaces. Now you're thinking so, like a Waldorf hey, teacher. Dude, get it. Be was, a bearded was, goddess. Plus, I was a practicing Wiccan, so you can imagine I was nonplussed by her logic. But yeah, <laughs> it's Waldorf school, so you win some, you lose some. It's interesting, you know, to tie in something that got said earlier, the thing about the alien fascination that people experience is it's a paradigm that lets normal people that would never go near the occult talk about powers and beings from outside their sphere of existence who are interested in them, that are possible to contact them and to whom you can enter into a relationship with. So if you look beyond the trappings of flying saucers and some of the gaudier elements, I think you see this hunger among people to, you know, to connect with the stars, literally, to connect with celestial powers, to connect with this idea of the other creatures of a world that is literally unseen. You know, and in some ways, the world we're all involved in now is the exact same impulse but it's directed toward historical and sociological and a different cultural direction. You know, they look to the future, you know, this futuristic concept of, of people from other worlds. We look to the past, the, the traditions of, of countries we're fascinated with and with, you know, tech that we find exciting and meaningful. And I mean, I feel like we're lucky. All, all five of us have engaged with traditions and systems that we find validating and we double down and we keep, we, you know, we feel like we've got a fish on the line. And even if it's nine, still 99% a mystery, we have a door, we have a window into that world, whether it's tarot cards or Egyptian, you know, uh, iconography, whether it's Sumerian, you know, a cuneiform, whether it's Greek myth, it, it's a window into a world that's gave us access to this idea of unseen powers. And that's what's so exciting. But a lot of people aren't drawn to that world. You know, it's hard to get people excited about a cultural system that they they attribute to being just, you know, sort of silly pop culture aspects, or they they associate it with school or history class or or something like that. But yet they'll gravitate to aliens because Star Wars, because the alien movies, because this. They've had decades of conditioning of exciting visual you know, mind-blowing experiences in the movie theaters and TV that excited them and, and inflamed their imagination. And I think some of the challenge for people like us who want to share our passion with some people might be intrigued, but on the fence is to share what's beautiful and vivid and, um, and life-changing and, and mind-blowing and, and uh, you know, shatters preconceived notions about the spiritual traditions we work with. I love Samuel's upcoming book, The Order of the Rod and Ring, presents these beautiful Sumerian gods in these dynamic, vivacious, humorous, sexy, powerful, you know, imagery that's, that's very uh, in sync with the original traditional systems, but they seem fresh, you know, they seem alive, they're exciting. They're, you know, they, they, they get you interested in it, just like, you know, Zem's 
book uh, of flesh and feather. It's a complete contemporary iteration of the God thought. There's nothing dusty about it. It's, it's a contemporary articulation of a spirit of art and creativity and inspiration and renewal and all that. And I think, and just without even having a, a reading from Kia, I know she's being modest. I mean, uh, so, you know, she's being modest. Never but, my name is. <laughs> okay. But to, have, to be working full time, you must find a way to open that world of divination of the spirits that you, know, you talk to people about in a way that keeps people coming back or that spreads mm -hmm. the word of mouth. If you're not advertising heavily and if you're not, you know, doing that, then it comes from making a meaningful connection interpersonally where people say, I'm going back and I'm bringing a friend this time. You know, that's how you you're the only one making a full time living off this. And that's I even I know that's how it's done. So mm -hmm. I I think that's the challenge for all of us, too. It's easy to throw shade at you know people with basic ideas. But the bigger challenge for us is how do you enliven and excite people about these worlds that we're involved in to give them something of value when they're surrounded by so much trash? It's, it's like mm -hmm. trying to interest someone in a healthy meal when they've grown up on junk food. And that's the challenge. How do you present to them something of value, of worth, that's exciting, that's transformative, that's consistent, but is contemporary and in a way that actually moves them uh, and gives them something of wonder and awe in today's world, which is full of anxiety and depression and everything's kind of banal and you're being bombarded with data and you know blase stuff all day long. How do you make it fresh, right? That's the trick. So, so Kia, how do you do it? <laughs> One thing, oh, I, one thing I, I want to say about that is, is <laughs> the bottom line, of course, is still you have to be good, right? Like, mm. uh, as a kid, I was taken around a lot of psychics by my astrologer mother, but you could tell the ones who were good versus not good, uh, right? And like, I think the only sort of psychical thing in our friendship I've ever asked you, you the response was, I can't get anything out of this person. And that was like, you know, a phony psychic would be like, just make something up if they couldn't read, see through someone's sphere or if the person was protected. And the fact that you're like, couldn't see anything. It's like, yeah, that makes sense. That those sort of things. So there's, it's a qualitative practice, psychism for sure. It's something no one likes to really talk about too much because, you know, we're all special, of course, but anyway. We're all X-Men. We're all Harry Potter. Uh, totally. We're all <laughs> students at Hogwarts or Brakespills or Xavier's school for gifted youngsters. Well, we're definitely forming those things, whether we like it or not, independently and, and collectively. Those we're, we're, This is quite a magical renaissance or revolution or whatever you want to call it. I mean, this is probably the most exciting time to be into our subjects since the Alexandria was burned. Well, perhaps. I don't know about you. I don't really... Uh, have any interest in fighting dark lords i i hear things oh. don't go well for for people <laughs> yeah. who do yeah no i didn't mean that i didn't mean that part of it no Plus, wars you know, no, no witch wars we'll just no cancel wars today dark lord is cancel them all and write a fevered essay hashtag cancel voldemort 
that's the way uh <laughs> there actually it's is true, though. Called I was... Voldemort in the golden dawn so that has a oh, double meaning Lord. yeah boy howdy anyway um, let's not get into that but yeah yikes but yeah bikes. no i mean i was thinking about this the other day about the fact that it is you know i think i think it's easy to forget because we're all living day to day paying our bills just trying to get through life but uh it is easy for easy to forget how present magic and the occult current is in day-to-day life for like a lot of people and i mean granted i'm in a, a bubble living in new orleans because as jack said i mean this is just like it's like living in salem massachusetts it's like every second person you meet even if they're not a full-time practitioner you know someone's mama someone's someone's uh, grandma has an altar to whatever in the back of her house and she doesn't talk about it like it's just you know it is a part of day-to-day life here but i think even in mainstream culture it's much more accepted and yeah i mean it's a diluted version of practice it's you know it's tiktok witchcraft and it's you know whatever passes for you know witchcraft now which isn't even wicca anymore it's you know so far diluted even from wicca that it's you know to be almost unintelligible but it is everywhere and um oh boy that was a face go on you have thoughts. I want to hear. <laughs> no, it's, I it's, didn't realize that my face was seen by everybody. Is that your face? <laughs> I have a hard time controlling my expressions, especially when it comes Same. to things that I'm very passionate about. And uh, <laughs> moving on. What's your sign, Samuel? What's my sign? <laughs> yeah. Uh, sign, do not baby? enter. No, I'm I'm uh, I'm a Virgo Sun with uh, Scorpio Moon and Sagittarius Rising. So Ooh, I boy. see. It's uh, a lot of mutable energy. There, there a lot of mutable energy. Yeah, absolutely. Well, are we gonna yeah. do the, we gonna do the roll call now and find out everybody's signs? I want to hear everybody speaking for oh. me since we're going there. Jack will never tell you because Jack is an international man of mystery and likes sure. to cultivate that mystique. So, because Jack doesn't know anything about astrology, that's what. That's the... I don't know. It sounds like Jack's a triple Scorpio to me. If you don't want to tell anybody, <laughs> <laughs> Jack, are you an Aries? No, I, I was born in uh, in January. I'm an Aquarius. Oh. Well, that's the best sign. I'm glad you said biased. Yeah, I'm, I, Sun, Sun, Mercury, and Mars in Aquarius conjunct, and then three planets in Libra. I'm all air. I'm all air. Nothing in water. One thing in Earth. I'm a Scorpio. That's all I know. But I do share a birthday with Charles Manson. Uh, wow. So. <laughs> I share a birthday with Justin Timberlake. So, oh, so you know, between so. the two of us, we have a party. Amazing. Justin Timberlake and Charles Manson. It's the same day as Thomas Merton as well. So there you go. That's a better one. But yeah, Manson, you're a Scorpio born on Manson's birthday. That is, yeah, it's it's a good thing you're married and not in the dating pool anymore. Eh? Oh <laughs> my God. Something kind of cool. Watch, look, this out. Hold on. Wait. <laughs> oh my gosh. What's happening? What's happening? I love it. Star script. We're officially off script. We're Amazing. Officially on you Magic Without that? Fears. That is someone's tooth. How's the person this is doing? Charles Manson's tooth. Oh, <laughs> I probably should have asked if I should have gotten. Should we banish? I'm banishing. Hey, 
hey Zemi, you should tell the story about that time that we did that thing and we heard a pig snorting and uh, other weird things happened. You should tell um, him you about Man- you should tell him about Manson's phone call too. Yeah. Okay. okay well, let's we'll do it. Um, well, what Sam is talking about, I think I told you on our interview that I benefit from having very uh, level-headed people around me all the time. So even <laughs> the most craziest things, uh, so long as it's happening around my wife, I know that it's actually true and it's not all up here, you know, or Sam or Jane or Jack. Uh, well, once Sam, my wife and I, I don't remember why, but we decided to try to do uh, a seance at the very beginning of our friendship. And I'll also keep in mind that, that <laughs> Zemi and his wife live in a historic area in the city in which we reside. So continue. Yeah. And our apartment is full of bones and uh, strange memorabilia. It's an eccentric place. Um, but uh so we do this uh, seance with a Ouija board and the whole bit. And I don't think anything ever happened with the Ouija board. Uh, but I was uh, recording the whole entire thing. And uh, at one point I asked uh, if I have something of theirs in the house. <clears throat> and we didn't hear anything. But when I listened to the EVP back later, uh, right after I finished asking that question, Uh, There was a very clearly audible pig grunting sound. And what's kind of uh, trippy about that is I've got a box of pig bones uh, from one of my old jobs uh, that an old man had fallen into his uh, a pen of hogs, basically, and had a stroke and they started to eat him. So they just had to kill all of the hogs and uh, pile them up in this great big pile down by the river and it just kind of sat there, you know, and I found them a couple of years later. So I just got all the bones, you know, cause whatever. So uh, is that what you're talking about, Sam? Yeah, that's exactly what I'm talking about. <laughs> that for a while, my apartment was haunted by uh, the ghost of a guy that got eaten by pigs. Yeah. This episode is sponsored by Shutters, so this is appropriate. <laughs> Oh, that is. Do you have it? Do you have it? Do you have an, a good local folklore alien story though? Before we wrap that subject up entirely, because uh, yeah, you got me all excited. I sort of, and the three of you are hang out. We today. did have an experience where we were on the prairie. There's this prairie outside of town. It's on 190 acres. There's a a man-made hill. Uh, it's a sledding hill. We've also done a ceremonial ritual there, but. We were on the prairie. We were going to perform some sort of ceremonial ritual at night. Uh, I think it was shortly after the new moon, may have been shortly before. In any case, we are walking down to the bottom of the prairie at this veritable crossroads where the prairie trails branch off. And we happen to look up and we see these lights moving in tandem and they're moving across the sky. And then suddenly they just separate um that happened a lot uh jack has seen these lights too he won't admit it <laughs> but, but other you're other saying they, they separate people, too fast for ships that we have i would say so yes yeah. and uh because the thought of 
extraterrestrials terrifies me. Um, <laughs> I I like to uh, I like to read things on Reddit so I can stay up late at night wondering if I'm going to be abducted uh, or if my house is going to be invaded by humanoids. Uh, but I was reading something that someone had written, and they stated that what we're actually seeing are not so much experimental aircraft, it's drones. And mm. the drones are operating in a manner that we're not used to seeing. So if they move in tandem, and then they separate, or if they strobe, and then the light ceases, you know, that's, that's what they're programmed to do. The problem with that, of course, is some of the velocities that you're seeing like if it's just like gone yes right like also, that tic-tac video they've, they've been they've been seen <laughs> these same lights in the sky have been seen for long before we had anything close to drones that's right. the other problem with the drone i think that's a, a slide down the down the th theory mountain as some as the conspiracy theorists would call it you know they're like they keep coming up with reasons to justify why the queen of england is not a reptilian you know and it's like okay you know um, well, we're all reptilians, and I don't know about you, but I've been vaccinated, so I have Nephilim DNA swimming around inside my <laughs> oh bloodstream my right now. If they I'm emitting the 5G signals, and uh, I'm growing wings and six talons as we speak. Dude, if they actually called the vaccine like the Nephilim, I would probably then take it. Stick it in my <laughs> veins. <laughs> um, yeah. Yeah. Well, here's hoping that I can leave my country again without being vaccinated. So let's all pray, let's all <laughs> we'll, pray for that. We'll see. If you have like three we'll autoimmune see. diseases, everything I'm hearing is like, don't take it. If you got like that meant three comorbidities for bad reactions, that's what I'm hearing. It's three, like, three is three is a lot. That's a lot. That's a lot. I'll, I'll give you that. Uh, so you I know. have one. I survived. I'm here. Ready to die. You, know? you know, I'm all for morphing my my DNA into Nephilim DNA. The Nephilim passage of Genesis six one to four was actually the my focal exegesis in in divinity school. So that was that oh was sweet, and then sweet everyone got deal. upset with me when I put it out. I print put it out on Amazon as a book. People got upset with me because there was no Watchers or Gregory and stuff. I'm like, yeah, I didn't touch on the pseudepigrapha or or extra canonical literature. They're like, well, then what's the point then? I'm like, it's biblical exegesis. See, that's the thing. That's the thing that like, draws people mostly in. what I'm sensational stuff. Yeah, like so, like most of the book is me talking about the enclitic mem which is a, a mem added instead of, of being a pluralization of the yod mem, it's meant to actually denote a different version of the verb nephal, which we default. And, you know, it's boring. It's boring. Of course it is. It's Hebrew exegesis. You're boring it. academic. So I, I know. I need to, I'm going to. <laughs> now, fortunately, my desire was to write that and that hopefully, because uh, mine was the most advanced academic study on that passage at the time. And finally, a PhD Airflip. came along and then did do a further study of that passage. I was shocked at how little study had been done. Because, you know, when I wrote it, I read everything that had been written on it all the way down through the Midrash and the Targums and everything in Hebrew and Aramaic for the, you know, the Targum, Targum Onkelos and stuff. And then I had to put that together a comment. But fortunately, a PhD did do a more advanced study, brought in a lot of the pseudepigraphic uh, writings. And now I could actually expand my work so that it might be more interesting to the general public because that PhD did that work. So that's what's awesome about academia. I, I think we, we, people need to understand that scholarship is about presenting the best possible argument. It's not presenting a strong argument because you are sure you're right and nothing's ever gonna change. It's because you, you want to be really 
when you're convinced that you're wrong or when you're surpassed, it's got to be is you want to be surpassed at your best, not when you've given it a half-ass attempt. And that's what oh my god, understand. yes, absolutely. That's what that's what that's so when I present a point as strongly and thoroughly as I can, it's not because I am that desperate to not be surpassed, it's because I'm that desperate to be surpassed, but it has to be it done, it has to be valid and really take things farther than I my work could. And that way I and then we're playing leapfrog in knowledge. Right. That's the point. And I hope that people listening understand that when you whether you're independent scholar or tied to a shackle to a university that is the goal it's to further our group learning not to not to get on a pedestal and you know hold your your medals to your chest so should we talk about drugs mic drop (laughs) only the legal kind because i can't do drugs and i don't want to yes yes well no one here obviously has on youtube has ever done drugs heard of drugs or heard what they are Unless, uh, you know, uh, okay, that, that joke's old. But um, here in Canada, things like, you know, peyote and 5-MeO-DMT and, and obviously cannabis and soon mushrooms are illegal, but that's not the point. The point is the first time I did DMT, I saw these reptilian alien beings that told me I had to return to earth and get as many people to do as much DMT as possible. This is only <laughs> interesting to me because I was at that time, two years ago, very anti-aliens like my dad always said oh there's got to be aliens look and he would look at the skies and show me like you know there's mathematically there must be many civilizations and you know i just never bought into it in any real way um but after but having that first uh, dmt experience with uh, my friend chris bennett who's written a lot on that sort of stuff right and his lever 420 and other books um it was weird to see reptilians because i had only heard about them peripherally from my friends who were into the aliens and i didn't even know that they were a big thing like i didn't know that was a thing that the reptilian thing was a thing like my buddy jeff in the 90s was like the queen of england's reptilian and i thought he was joking but no this is a whole thing like that's a it's a really big thing so when i was in this dmt realm and saw these like aliens over these crystals and they turned to me and saw me they were surprised to see me and they told me this message and it was a terrifying thing to be told because uh I felt at my core it was true and that I should do what they wanted. And at the same time, I'm like, am I really talking to multidimensional reptilians? So, so when they spoke to you, um, yeah, it was scary. And I was, did you, did you perceive it in an audio sense or was it more in a mental speaking into my head? All the voices were in my head, but I was very much in that realm. It was a sufficient amount that I was able to turn around and look around me and I was in this crystalline cave and I I actually did like I've always done with 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 uh DMT and and changa uh used my training ritual magic to move about places as best I can to me that's the real challenge is can I go to different places rather than just be taken for a ride so that was one of the places I went to on that trip and it was shocking to me to see what I could identify as these sort of this crystalline landscape with these like reptilians there's no other word to describe them by so it made me think maybe these are a multi-dimensional thing that are out there i mean i don't believe it was just something yanked from my subconscious because it was something that i had so eschewed and completely thought was goofy from the first time i heard about them to, and i'd never focused on it. i didn't even know it was a real thing and this wasn't like a dream so that was shocking to me to see this connection and that was when i first started thinking about is there some sort? Is there something going on here? Um, and the fact that they told me to make sure that everyone, that me and everyone else, <laughs> it's a sort of a 
terrifying uh, edict to be given is to make sure everyone does as much of this as possible. Like if it was heroin, we would all be terrified and be like, oh my God, Jesus Christ, what a demonic thing you just had happen to you. But it's like, is there something going on? I'm curious now. And in the 20 something trips I've done since then, and especially last year, I, I've been exploring a lot of things, but I've never seen anything like that again. Never had an experience like that again. I've also never tried to go into such dark realms as I was intentionally going into. First, I, when I first did that hit that trip, um, it was at the Soma Institute run by Chris Bennett in, in the Okanagan here, where they you know grow all these things and have the toads and everything. You can go there and run retreats and stuff. And it was in this big, massive teepee that fits like 40, 50 people with fire in the middle. It was a magical experience. But my first thing that happened was I invoked Thoth because this is what Tahitians do, right, Zami? I invoked Tahuti and put on that God form and shot up as high as I could and experienced some divine realms. But being very familiar and comfy in those divine realms, I, I was instantly sort of bored. I was like, okay, let's, let's go down. Take, take me down to those dark places like Jesus did. And I went down as deep as I could and had some saw some horrific landscapes and then coming out of that i went to this other weird place that just i was sort of pulled into with these weird creatures so that was my first experience of dmt and uh i think about it to this day as you can tell that leads us into this idea of what's the role of entheogens these days since they're becoming mainstream and popular and there's such a crossover between them and esoteric practices going back to ancient Assyria. I mean, when they are doing these, they had those, they had these, they were using entheogens in Egypt and Syria and all of these places. They were experimenting with opiums and, and psilocybins and DNT. And the more we talk about that and understand that that was a part of their culture, the more it opens up questions about their role in popular spirituality, especially as we revitalize some of these older forms. Well, traces of THC, uh, or cannabis oil, whatever, um, were recently found on an unearthed horned altar in, I think, Israel or in and around that the vicinity. Oh, of, I didn't know about that. I knew about the altar scrapings that happened uh, just yeah. a while ago. So again, your 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 point is is being proven that uh, ancient relics are being found with obvious traces of of these now illicit substances well curious to see the research i mean that's not my field of study it's um, in numbers i I do find it interesting yes yes absolutely in numbers 30 the abramelin point uh as it's called now it's called the abramelin incense but that's not what it was called back then it's just you know the uh the the oil has cannabis in it or or calamus i mean some hebrew scholars try and tell you that it's not cannabis but we know it was can we don't want you to know about some yeah um my even my hebrew teachers were like oh we don't know what it was like they had fields of cannabis back there back then if it was if they didn't have this if cannabis wasn't the phrase used to refer to cannabis then they literally had no word for something they grew fields of hemp right right? (laughs) so uh, either that word does refer to that or they didn't have a word for something they cultivated, which doesn't make any sense. Which doesn't make any sense because they would have ascribed a name to everything yeah. that that they were familiar with. Uh, cannabis, or it's alleged to be uh, cannabis, was apparently sacred to, to Ishtar. Uh, but mm. the information that I found about that has been very anecdotal. I can't find anything that's, that's uh, more definite or has more, I want to say, academic backing. So 
unfortunately, I can't speak to anything uh, beyond that anecdotal statement. Yes, I understand those might be constraints on this topic a little bit. Does anyone want to comment on, on the potential theoretical role of entheogens in spiritual practices and uh, especially occultisms? Well, ancient Egyptian medical papyri are full of references of shum shumet, which is cannabis, uh, and probably the second most invoked god in medical papyri is Tahuti. So it is a part of what I do over here. Oh, I will say, uh, I apologize. <laughs> I love that you clapped. <laughs> I'm talking to people. I love it. Let me talk. <laughs> Uh, I will say one of my friends mentioned since since barley was a major staple in in the ancient Near East, it is possible that a lot of the uh, more psychedelic experiences, so to speak, may have been the result of ergot. So that's something, if I recall correctly, that was instrumental in the the uh, Salem witchcraft craze. So who yeah. knows? Again, something that's anecdotal, but worth looking into. Yeah, my, my friend, uh, fellow our fellow Aquarius, Jack, Thomas Hatzis, the scholar and witch, um, has some great books through inner traditions, uh, in, uh, psychedelic mystery traditions, and the witch's ointment, which looks over the history of those different things. He's uh, the main um, uh, foil to uh, Brian Murarescu's new book, The Immortality Key, and, and Chris, Chris Bennett and, and Tom Hatzis did a little threesome with uh, Brian Murarescu on their channels addressing the ergot issue in fortified wines because ergot can be was used used to produce LSD um, though what his point was interesting is that it probably wasn't as common as people supposed especially for the Eleusinian mysteries because it was so difficult to do um, and uh, if you did it wrong you died so it was much more likely given they had ready ready access to mandrake um, and uh, cannabis and opium, more likely they probably used the things that were easy and safer than going through the arduous, arduous process of doing ergot. So they definitely did use ergot to make LSD compounds and have those experiences and religions and ceremonies, but it was probably less common than we think. It was probably one of the more minor ones because of the complexity and difficulty and danger. So that's interesting. Thomas Hatzis is, is a good one to have on a future round table if anyone wants to get deep in the weeds with witchcraft and ointments and stuff. But do you know anything, Zemi, about um, mushroom usage in, in Egypt? Because I know a lot of people in the, in the popular world, I, I don't want to call it the frou-frou, woohoo world, but it's, it's sort of the woohoo world. Talk about mushrooms being in the pyramids and they were all doing mushrooms in the pyramids. But I don't think that's actually something that we really know. Have you come across that? No, uh, and in fact, I'm not even sure off the top of my head if mushrooms are a readily available even food source in Egypt. Back then, yeah. Hmm. yeah. Interesting. I don't know. People, I don't know. People can figure out a way to believe just about whatever they want to believe with regards to all of that. So for the most part, I kind of ignore great chunk of it <laughs> there's a celeste you have a have experience especially mixing herbs with uh other things for lucid dreaming do you want to mm -hmm. share some of your insights and experience with people about that 
I feel like whatever I have to say is going to be deeply disappointing. Um, you know, I, I have to be real, you know, I think, um, you know, there's this, because of this, this thing that we're talking about earlier with this sort of proliferation of, of witchcraft, you know, hashtag witchcraft, you know, everywhere on the internet and businesses popping up right, left and center to sort of sell these products or these services. You have these, all these companies selling, um, you know, flying ointments. Like there's a bunch of companies that produce salves and flying ointments and things like that, um, which all, I mean, the packaging is always amazing and these things always smell incredible. Um, and you have sort of flower essences and stuff. And I've used a bunch of that stuff because um, I'll try anything once. And I really would rather be asleep most of the time having a lucid dream. I don't really enjoy conscious reality. So absolutely sign me up for anything that might increase my capacity to experience these things. But I don't know that I've ever used anything that I think has you know, measurably improve my ability to achieve a lucid state. I smoke mugwort occasionally, you know, mugwort, I think I'm yeah. safe to, I think I'm safe to say that. I don't think that there's any, any illegal situation going on with the good old mugwort plant. I think we can, I think that's probably still legal on some level. Anyway, you know. People uh, post videos of them doing on YouTube, like DMT and all these drugs. So I'm pretty sure talking we're about good. on yeah. YouTube is fine. <laughs> Because they're not coming for me and my mugwort. That's not a problem. Um, <laughs> never again. Your... Right. Not mugwort, not even once. Um, never again the yeah. mugwort times. <laughs> well, Mandrake's but, an um, interesting one. Yeah, you know, so I don't know, like the mugwort, um, you know, I sometimes I drink it in a tea. Sometimes I have, uh, you know, I, I smoke it a little bit. I, I haven't noticed nothing so dramatic that I'm like, oh, fuck, that was definitely the mugwort, you know? Um, and then I have some like Datura, ointments and stuff like that that I will use occasionally I think a lot of it in those small doses in that in that way of dosing it is probably psychosomatic you know I think probably it is a it's a kind of placebo effect but my stance on the placebo effect is that's the the underpinning principle of most magic so look if you want to buy your detour ointment I see your face again. I'm seeing those eyebrows shoot up. I'm like, he's got thoughts. I want to hear him. Um, but yeah, <laughs> I like you to know. keep those to myself. <laughs> the eyebrows go up, the thoughts stay inside. Um, I see. But yeah, you know, I think uh, it's interesting to play with those things, but I have a feeling that in the ways that we are, you know, contemporaneously administering them, these products that we're buying, I, I can't imagine that biologically medically it's it's doing or chemically it's doing much to you i would think i think it's also because it's so readily accessible or it's being presented as readily accessible it takes away the i don't want to say the mystique i think it takes away the ceremony that mm -hmm. that is required that goes with the use of of these these plants um, I remember reading a text, and again, I, it's anecdotal because I don't remember the title, but I remember reading how uh, this, this certain indigenous group viewed, um, not nightshade, moonflower, datura, as, as a means of uh, spiritual travel. However, it was supposed to be used with another entheogen 
because without combining the two, the Datura gave you wings, but it drug you straight to hell. Whereas mm. combining the two, it gives you wings, so to speak, like Red Bull, but it carries you <laughs> off of the earthly plane into the spiritual plane. And I would love to get my hands on that book again, because there were, there were some interesting parallels there with the, the descent to the, to the underworld and totally yeah yeah I don't I don't think this is the book that you're talking about but I know that Peter Gray touches on that kind of thing a little bit in apocalyptic witchcraft um and and kind of goes into that discussion a little bit and and yeah for sure and I think you're right I I think like I mean it's the same thing right with things like peyote retreats or you know you have you know your Gwyneth Paltrow goop people paying whatever it is to like go for a weekend to wherever it might be um and you know trip out and vomit in a bucket and have their you know thousand dollar spiritual I'm inclined to think again. that it's diet peyote so. <laughs> <laughs> shout out to our sponsors goop thank you thank you bro. <laughs> For, uh, she she sold this uh, like uh, uh, psychic vampire defense oil or something to do yes, with that. Yes, yes. And then the even candle. Was, I think it was a then, candle. Yeah, it was. And then it got like criticized in a in a in a way that showed that I think it could have some negative effect. But they kept selling it anyway or something like that. I don't know. Uh, yeah. Goop. Okay. Anyway. Well, she's she's doing well for herself. You know when I that you know when, witchcraft. <laughs> ooh. Yeah, Gwyneth Paltrow, she needed a lot of help selling overpriced things to people to do well in life. Yeah, I think she was, she was sort of born royalty, wasn't she? But um, when yeah, I was young, true. I didn't um, drink or do drugs until like 24. I didn't ex even experiment at all with like cannabis. And I would make incenses. I would grind my own incenses and make incenses. And what I noticed was because I uh, like, I was initiated at seven years old into Maharishi's system and through my family and that's how I grew up meditating every day um and I was very sensitive for sure and I noticed massive changes even if I would mix lavender and sandalwood or you know copal frankincense and sandalwood or then mixed in this other thing every every different concoction of incense when I meditated had radically different effects on me and and made huh. major changes in me to the extent that when I would have birthday parties in my my Walder school childhood my classmates you know who were all drinking and smoking weed they'd come over and sure enough it was a staple at my birthday parties that at some point I would take them all into my room all the girls and boys all 12 or 20 of us and they'd all sit in a circle in my bedroom with the candles lit and I'd burn an incense and we'd all close our eyes and meditate and uh, like <laughs> I, I, to this day actually if any of them ever find out my magical name Fred or RC and find out like wait I know that dude and hear me say this like thank you all for doing that because what was really cool about it was they all had experiences we'd also like you know you get five to 20 people sitting in a circle holding hands and burning this concoction and like maybe with some sort of intonation and these kids who really would probably rather be getting wasted at a grade eight or grade 10 birthday party had crazy experiences and they they expressed altered states and 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 tremendous things like the, i can't even tell you all the different things that would they said and they did this every year they came back to my birthday mm. parties knowing exactly what was going to happen right um and uh, i think there's something to be said about about just yeah spiritual practices and the impact that uh non like they're even saying frankincense is so psychoactive now just minorly these things do mm -hmm. have tremendous impacts on us when we are sensitizing ourselves through 
through spiritual practices like meditation and ritual. Like it just, it opens us up to have crazy experiences with things that would otherwise not affect the normal sober mind in, in the same way, I think. Um, I, I'm just trying to open Definitely. it up to, to this. No, this I mean, you all. I think you're right. And like having just, you know, verbally thrown all those products under the bus and been like, they don't work. I'm going to now backtrack slightly <laughs> and say, imagine that. Um, and say that, like, I think that this is the key, though, is that, like, are you using something in a ritual context or are you just buying it on Etsy and then slapping it on your wrists and being like, well, now I'm going to drink my, like, bottle of vodka and slap this salve on and go to sleep and fuck it, you know, um, because in the instances that I have used it within a ritual context, it has had a different effect. So, you know, th that is definitely, definitely a thing for sure. It elevates it. It, it mm -hmm. takes it out of the, the profane and puts it in into the context that it's supposed to be used in. Mm -hmm. That's yeah, why yeah. that's why I like the term entheogen. When I, I only discovered it about five years ago in my friend Dr. Angela Voss's work. And I was like, what is this? And then I was like, oh, this is the term being used by academics to describe uh, psychedelic and psychoactive substances being used in ritual settings. Drugs. My, my <laughs> I mean it's it's you know, given my early youthful experiences of, of regular herbs um, or herbs, you guys say herbs, right? Um, plants and medicines being powerful in ritual settings, my whole childhood, like just really powerful. Um, it, it's made me think that the entheogen term is, is just actually quite a broad term that it can encompass whatever incenses or scents or herbs you are using in oils and, and in your rituals, as long as it's in the context of the ritual, that's what entheogen encompasses. Um, I don't want to dominate all the time, but I, I, well, I don't want to pick on no, anyone, I mean, but I'm cu very curious to see what each of you, how, how that plays a role in your traditions. Well, um, I'm going to like, I just want to, I'll shut up after this probably, <laughs> but uh, maybe who knows. Um, but I think also like approaching, and, and this is going to sound maybe crunchy or whatever. Um, and I'm not, you know, from a tradition necessarily that approaches things crunchy this. or shady oh that's the real question maybe both crunch and shade a little a little column a a little column b but um plants have spirit right like everything has spirit and i think like approaching something from a place of respect as well and that, that ties into the idea of elevating something in a ritual context but you know I have started, I have this beautiful greenhouse in my backyard now over the, over quarantine, I saved up money and I hired this amazing lesbian contractor, shout out to Lauren and got her to build this beautiful um, greenhouse out of salvage windows in my backyard. So I'm growing all my own herbs now. And that to me makes a difference, you know, because I develop a relationship with the plant over the course of growing it. You know, I have, I bought Datura seeds on the internet the other day. So I'm like soaking the Datura in water and hydrogen peroxide before I plant the seeds and growing that relationship with the plant as I go. I mean, you know, I'm not at a point where I'm able to like extract anything from it and make anything out of it. Maybe eventually I'll get there, but that makes a difference rather than just going down to the botanica and buying whatever it is uh, pre-dried. So I think, you know, it is, it's respect for what you're working with as well. And acknowledging that this thing has a life, that it is giving to you, sacrificing for you so that you can ingest it or you can use it, you know, that changes things in my opinion. Well, also when you approach something 
in a ritual sense. If you uh, view something as holy uh, and perform ritual with it, you're closing off all of the outside world except for the world within your ritual. Uh, with less to get in the way, things like incense and herbs have room to sort of expand a little bit, if that makes sense. They mean more if your world is smaller. So, I mean, there's a reason why they most ancient texts specify which incense uh, to use at, one, at what time. There's a reason why you had all of those, uh, you know, varying experiences. You were uh, interacting with them in a sense they were holy to you. They have a personality just as much as you or I do. Oh. Yeah. Jack, can, I'm, I'm very curious about the role of uh, incense in, in your PGM work and your devotion to Hecate, the role of incense, entheogens, and all of such, uh, such things. Is that a big part of uh, your practices? You know what? It's something I need to explore more fully. I can say that when I do Hakatian work, I burn myrrh and I've come to associate that scent with, with her and with that devotional uh, side of things that I try to do as much as I can. With um, the Dionysian work I do, I burn storax and I've, I've gotten to where I like that a lot. <laughs> it has a more acrid scent that's very heady and it, I've come to really rely on that. And it's kind of hard to find. Um, so I like that very much. I'm always surprised that the Orphic hymns, they only list a couple of, you know, after each of these hundred hymns, they list which incense to burn. And really it's the same three or four. It's either frankincense or myrrh, or, you know, there's a couple of, of two more that they might um, recommend. And it's, it's hard to determine the pattern, the pattern's not as straightforward as you would think. And sometimes it seems kind of haphazard even. So I'm, I'm more than open to learning different ways and better ways to incorporate that into my work. I do know, you know, that one of the things back in, in, in late empire Rome, the uh, Eastern mysteries were banned for Roman citizens. They wanted Roman citizens to practice the traditional Roman cult Roman cult was very staid and it was kind of boring by even by pagan standards and and it was it was you know the priest did everything who stood there the sacrifice it was very straightforward but eastern mysteries had a reputation for being literally intoxicating you know they were ecstatic and there was a sense when a Roman citizen which is where they're drawn to them went into a temple even a small one where an eastern god was being worshipped There'd be clouds of incense and beautiful fabrics. You know, there'd be jewels and, you know, there could be nudity. There could be, you know, amazing drumming. There could be remarkable visions inspired. There'd be more ecstatic pronouncements. You were more likely to have a visceral experience of the divine if you were engaging in an Eastern tradition. And the, and the, the festivals and celebrations they would have would be, you know, clouds of of incense smoke and the, the chanting and the dancing and the self-mutilation sometimes and the, the ecstasy of the myth, it was meant to transport, you know, it was meant to, to wrench you out of the mundane and take you to a place in a headspace that was entirely beyond what you were used to. It's why they were, you know, so attractive. And it's why the Roman, the Latins feared them because they were, 
they seemed um, hard to control and, uh, and, uh, and, and all that came with it. So, you know, I have great respect for anything that fills the senses. And oftentimes, you know, our rituals, I know for myself, they're kind of basic. It's me reading something. And you forget, you have five senses at least, you know, where is the taste in this ritual? Where is the scent? Where is the beautiful sight? Uh, where is the sound that's gorgeous? How can you enrich it through each of the senses to make it a tapestry of something that's beauty, uh, beautiful and, and meaningful and transportive? We're all trying to sacralize our own lives, you know, to, to, to sacralize the mundane through this work. So why especially incense, which is relatively affordable. And so, you know, a single whiff is so, it just changes the way you apprehend your space, you know. And um, I love it. It's a great way to honor celestial and aerial powers. And I think we don't use it enough. I don't think we know how stingy we are with our materia. And sometimes you can glimpse it in older practices. You know, there's that famous account by uh, Benvenuto Cellini about attending a necromancer in, the, um, in Rome, going to the Colosseum at night to see him do a goetic invocation. And he talks about, they build a bonfire and he talks about throwing, and, and he talks about these terrifying visions of ghosts they had in demons they have all night. But one of the details is about throwing basically bales of herbs on the fire. And it doesn't take a lot of imagination to say, you know, they were probably burning hemp. They were probably burning, you know, other flowers and herbs that could have an ethnogenic effect. You know, I think their spiritual experience was real, but there were probably all night long clouds of this stuff coming off the fire that was fueling the vision and fueling the ecstasy of the right, you know. You know, I tend to think I've done my job if I burn one cone of myrrh, you know, and I feel like <laughs> Gandalf, that I, I think sometimes it's worth remembering. You gotta grind it yourself, baby. Right, it's sometimes it's worth remembering, you know, to ask ourselves, what if I did 10 times what I was doing? What would the effect then now? What if I did 20, um, you know? within the scope of not burning down my home or, or killing myself, you know, we have to throw in, have to throw in as a, as a, as a disclaimer, you know, things like Datura are insanely dangerous and can cause death and blindness. Uh, right. But, but, you know, but that's not to say there's for every one like that, there's 200 incenses and oils that are safe. And why, where I have to remind myself, why aren't I pushing the limits of what I'm doing? to create a deeper praxis. Because I know for myself, the danger is I become comfortable and I plateau and I get bored with my own praxis. And then I start to, I start to skip nights and I start to you know, minimize the time doing it because I've been there, I've done that. I know what to expect. I'm not sort of scaring myself anymore because I'm not pushing myself anymore. And I know I have to keep reminding myself, stop being basic and push it. And that's, that's my challenge, you know. I yeah, that. I love that. You know, I love also this idea that you just touched on, Jack, of like fear is a part of the experience, I think, yeah. of, of being yeah. an occult practitioner and being on this path. And I, I to take us way back to the beginning of the conversation, I, I worry sometimes that 
the more mainstream contemporary conversation steers us away from fear. We're so obsessed with this being safe and yeah. creating this sort of like kind of neutered experience. Yeah. Um, and we should be afraid. Some of this stuff yeah. is scary as shit. I think that's like the point, surely, you know? So yeah. in Mesopotamian philosophy, uh, to be in the presence of a god was to be overcome. You could tell that a god or a spirit was near or you were in their presence because you were overcome with such a visceral sense of dread. Um, mm -hmm. Dread may not necessarily be the correct term, but it's such an incomprehensible state that you're in. And according oh. to, according to uh, the texts, the, the presence of, of a god radiates uh, with such splendor, such majesty, demons, uh, also possess uh, the same uh, splendor and majesty. It's, it's called Malam, M-E-L-A-M. And uh, the human reaction to it is Ni, N-I. So it's described as a prickling of the flesh, uh, which is essentially goosebumps. So think of all the times that you've been in ritual and you've suddenly have that overwhelming sense of dread or you have the the prickling of the flesh or you know you feel like your your throats your your hearts in your throat uh i think in those situations that's when you know you are in the presence of something otherworldly i've had that experience more times than i can count um even sometimes just doing a a day-to-day -day devotional ritual of lighting incense and going about my day sometimes i have to stop uh, on my way out of my my temple and go back and at least bow before the shrine before I can do anything because there's just there's that compulsion that I'm feeling this presence so I need to do something to propitiate the the being that is present in that space yeah I'll add this too because I think I agree with everything Sam said and and uh, Celeste as well. I think if the work you're doing is purely archetypal, you won't know what we're talking about. If the work you're doing is just you think you're projecting your energy into the universe, you're not going to understand what we're talking about. And if you think it's simply, you know, some sort of paradigm for self-help or some sort of expression of your own, you know, artistic, metaphorical experience of the universe, it won't make sense. But if you buy into the spirit model of the universe, where that everything has a spirit, and if you call forth something, it will. There's a good chance that it may actually make itself manifest to you. I think whatever you call comes; it comes every time. But that sense of that apprehension of what could be called the numinous, that prickling of the flesh, the prickling of the hair at the back of the neck. Anyone who's done this sort of work knows that feeling and knows that it's what you yearn for and dread at the same time. There's a great description in one of C.S. Lewis's novels of someone who comes in the, the presence of an angel in the, in, a, in the form of a pillar of fire. And he realizes that it's looking at him as much as a pillar of fire can look at someone. And he has two equal and immediate fears. One, that it will keep doing it. And two, that it will stop. Mm. And there's that sense, which I think a lot of us hunger for, 
that sense that we're in the room with something that we've called forth has independent agency. And it, uh, you know, Robert Graves described it. He said, the white goddess cannot be apprehended through our physical, our bodies recognize her because she's a bodily force. And that's that feeling. And even in Thai magic, when they're doing necromantic work in a graveyard, they say the spirit approaches from behind. And what they mean is wherever you're facing, whatever you're calling, it comes behind you. And you know exactly what they're talking about because that's where the feeling arises, that stiffening of the hair at the back of the neck. And that sense that there's someone standing right behind you so close that they could lay a hand on your shoulder. And some people even have that feeling once in a while of a touch at the back or a hand on the shoulder. John D describes it and, um, or a breath, you know, and there's that sense of presence, which is really concrete sometimes. And sometimes bafflingly inconsistent, you know, I might do what I consider to be a major right and never experience it. I thought it was at the new moon right. I was outdoors at a crossroads and I never had that feeling. And I tell myself, it doesn't matter. Your feelings are irrelevant to whether or not the right work. You know, fuck your feels. It doesn't matter. But I also know that sometimes I'll do something simple and my mind will be elsewhere thinking, you know, I really have to. I got to take out the recycling by the time I'm done. And all of a sudden the hair will prickle almost painfully on my skin. And I wouldn't have been in the moment at all, but I'll know something's present. And I don't know why it came right then, but it's there, you know, so what do you do? And, um, but I find that one of the most gratifying aspects of this work. And it scares me every time, but I'm always, whenever it happens, I know that I'm still in the game to some degree, which is a good reminder, you know, that is the game is not without stakes and we do have to treat it seriously because certainly the beings we call forth do. And we can't mm -hmm. start to think of them in a sloppy or casual way. There always has to be respect. Amen. God, speaking of amen, so it reminds, reminds me of my childhood uh, growing up in, in Pentecostal church where during praise and worship, if you weren't having some sort of emotional or visceral experience, oh, my battery's almost going, um, you, were, you were said to not be in the presence of the Holy Spirit versus having one of those experiences where you're so emotionally moved that you start breaking down in tears. That's when you knew that the, the, the Spirit was, was with you and, and that your experience was was genuine. So I think about that a lot that I feel like that has informed me to some degree um, when it comes to a more esoteric practice instead of a, a Christian practice. So that's, it's an interesting point. That I mean, it's, 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 it's built into the alchemical formula of solvate coagula, right? And it's just, it's clearly an important thing. It definitely is mishandled, I think, in most, uh, Pentecostal or charismatic worship services, but I mean, religion often is dabbling in realms that are actually well understood. Um, we've just gone through this very long period of, uh, of religious culture that has rejected, of course, its esoteric and mystical cores, unfortunately. So, so familiarity with that stuff, even in the Christian history, was much more understood in the past. Um, I mean, in, Jude in Judaism, it was always very well understood in Kabbalistic schools, 
the, the importance of ecstasy and ecstasy, the radical transformation that would come from worship that really was brought back by the charismatic movement in, in America in the last uh, 150 years. So that's an, it's an interesting thing. Um, we are, we are ready to move into the end of our beautiful round table. It's been, it's been wonderful, but I guess uh, before we do like uh, uh, Reverend Zemi is uh, I'm curious about the, the group, like maybe we'll wrap up by talking about a bit what we're all up to. Um, since I know I'm interested and if I'm interested in what all all y'all are up to then I'm sure everyone else is too right it's a healthy view of myself in the universe <laughs> not solipsistic at all um, but I'm, I'm curious about your views on on ecstasy and ecstasy like ex expression outwards and and you know both of them are models of mystical connection one happens through leaving yourself or the experience of feeling like you're leaving yourself and one is the experience of radically going into yourself in, in, in what you're setting up in the church of, of flesh and feathers, do you have, um, and even in your book, which I can't wait to get, it's a, I don't know if you have a copy there, but people need to see how beautiful your book is, but don't all go buy it at once because I need to call. Oh, right. We, we've got that sort of <laughs> Last time I promoted a book, it's by Skinner. It's sold out, so I didn't get one. And I was like, wait, oh my God, what did I do? So um, do you have that much built into your practices? This is maybe a question for all three of you with your, with your schools of magic. Um, I'm curious about the emphasis on those kinds of what Samuel called Pentecostal breakdown of the self as, as a methodology in ritual. Yeah, I definitely do. Uh, the ancient Egyptian uh, praxis usually began at uh, something called Zeptepi, which was the very beginning, the first sunrise. And the naturist system that I am creating myself uh, recreates that as well. So <clears throat> the very first, I guess, step in ritual worship in, uh, in well, magic um, is to one uh, sort of uh, deeply contemplate the nature of your being. Uh, begin to uh, unravel long-held beliefs. Uh, begin to disassociate with uh, people. Uh, just completely through meditation, remove all meaning from your life. And then allow yourself to basically sync up to music. So uh, drumming is usually, or a sistrum I've got uh, usually helps with that as well. Get your body in sync to the little tiny universe you're making just in your own temple space. And then uh, once that begins, start building into uh, what I refer to as a fury. Uh, start uh, almost like uh, inducing a panic attack almost. Um, find yourself in a state of chaos uh, because the very first moment is the beginning of ordering the universe. So in order to achieve uh, your goal, you have to first present all of the pieces of that goal before you. You know what I mean? Yeah. Uh, so yeah, first is basically eliminate yourself so that you are not, um, you're not your job, you're not the clothes you wear, you're not the apartment you live in. Uh, you are just one with everything, so you're free to flow in and out of everything. 
and then start building what you want before you. Uh, sometimes it, it could be a years long process. Sometimes uh, the result is almost instant. Um, but yeah, the, and I don't know what people are gonna think about this, but there was an ancient Egyptian practice um, specifically in Hermopolis, uh, wherein a large statue of Tehuti would have a pipe running through its mouth, through a wall into a different room. And basically a priest would be in that other room, which I mean, was small and typically, uh, you know, uh, terrifying, dark, um, you know, uh, but working themselves into a state of ecstasy and then speaking a glossolalia. So basically speaking in tongues uh, because so much of what I do uh, centers around the written word specifically, but also the spoken word. Um, a big part of what I do is removing meaning from words uh, that or uh, breaking words apart into smaller parts and then reordering the way I ask things or say things. So basically, I'm saying speaking in tongues, <laughs> speaking into existence, the order you want to see. That was awesome, brother. <laughs> that was awesome. Um, I'm hoping yeah. to record a video of it happening sometime because people, it's difficult to, um, it's difficult to uh, comprehend when you're just watching a video uh, of mm. the shrine and me doing it in the background. Um, yeah, you do those on Facebook Live, uh, people. Something that's something to let people know as we're doing our outro presentations of what we're up to for folks. You're doing yeah. Well, the Hika I only do uh, a few times a month on Facebook Live, and I never post those. What I post to Facebook is the uh, the weekly. I'm in Shrine three times a day. So I broadcast one of them every week just uh, because I believe that um, devotion is necessary in what we do. And I know a lot of people have removed the uh, religious component of the occult and esoteric. And I think truly that that is having an effect on the world around us. Uh, we wield these powers with no respect for the, for the powers that, uh, well, control those powers, I guess. That was a poorly worded sentence, but you get what I'm saying, right? Yeah. Taking advantage of the gods, basically, by not thanking them, by not giving them offerings, by accomplishing great things, and then saying that it was just our will and intention. Um, I lost my train of thought. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, the issue of cutting yourself off from uh, source and uh, personal and mystical connection just by playing thaumaturgically with natural forces and manipulating them. It's an interesting point. Actually, uh, David Heimsmith got into it with me for a long time when I got to talk to him. He's a very interesting guy. I mean, it's, it's, uh, the, the, I think that's why Golden Dawn temples are still all dedicated to usually an Egyptian god. So it's like, you know, where there's always these shrines and venerations. Like these pictures are from, uh, this is not even at Temple Tehuti's shrines. These are from Temp that was Temple of Isis down in LA. I think these are the only, I uh, don't know how many other photos there are of these uh, left, but these were, you know, the Golden Dawn temples traditionally have these sort of uh, 
altars and shrines of adoration, even as they are mainly training people to practice magic and initiating them to develop and grow, there's still this implicit and essential act of veneration of the divine itself that is, is I haven't noticed, I've been out of touch maybe, I was, I was playing Irish music for a few years here and there around the world, so I wasn't too, I came back to the occult and was like, whoa, a lot's happened since I was gone, and one of the things that's happened is this removal of the religious, almost a persecution of even the religious impetus from the occult, and I'm very fascinated by that, and fascinated by the, the people like all of yourselves who who are have such a focus and dedicated de dedication to Hecate or Jehuti or uh well ya or Pazuzu Pazuzu <laughs> I, have a, I, plus I just got a cursed object from the set of the exorcist allegedly cursed by Pazuzu oh, who showed up on the set it's in my bag over there but nothing bad has happened yet so far um maybe I'll yeah. send it to you if it is cursed by Pazuzu, wasn't Pazuzu typically uh, kind of a guardian of children? Well, and he's, mothers? yeah, he's uh, he's the protector of children. He is an agent of the gods. So typically he was invoked or petitioned to drive away um, those those demons, those those spirits that would prey upon pregnant women, women in childbirth. Uh, infants so anything that's the personification of crib death or infertility um you would ask pazuzu to uh to protect you from mm. so if you've got a cursed object uh <laughs> well, I, I don't think I'm it curious was to know <laughs> more it's a little that. it's a little baby head you'll love it i'll show it to you uh hopefully Ooh, cool. when we do a podcast coming up <laughs> yeah oh it was a wonderful gift by this sore um, I was like, ah, do I really want to take this home with me? But then I was like, eh, I'll wrap it in silk. Fuck it, it'll be fine. <laughs> um, but I, I also don't think the set was in the set was famously haunted, right? It's a, it's oh, a famous absolutely. Hollywood story. Absolutely. But I, I don't actually think it would make even any sense for it to have been Pazuzu who was haunting the set, even though that was the icon they showed at the in the beginning of the film, because they were talking about the demon being Legion and all these other things. And it's not like they were trying to evoke any kind of spirit while filming it so it was an unintentional haunting it could have maybe right. anything attracted to such a um, magnetic set as they were creating on where they were it's probably and, probably yeah. just like a really angry grip like a, a really angry tech guy who was fucked over by the director just came back to like <laughs> Piss on you don't know who's going to be a chaos <laughs> it was an underpaid Saying. union member like yeah dude <laughs> oh god who knows i could always send you the head and you can analyze it yourself just put it under your pillow and pray uh, it's or a pretty something. cool thing i'll show it to all y'all sometime it's uh um <laughs> hauntings are interesting that that's a thing celeste and i talk about a, a bunch she's done three episodes of my podcast and many more to come, I'm sure. It. Many more. First time I talked to her, we actually talked about like pizza gate and stuff. It was random, oh but but I tend to. Uh, that's the only rule on my podcast is uh, you know transgression. And now a word from our sponsors. 
While we cannot control whether any ads get put in the spots allocated, we thank you for listening to those that do since they help keep this project alive. You can also get ad-free content and bonus content and videos and a private webpage by subscribing exclusively to magicwithoutfears.com for only a couple dollars a week or $6 a month or 50 for the year. It helps a lot, plus you get emails about other exclusive things. Thank you very much. I think there's something powerful right. about transgression. I'm, I'm a big fan of what um, philosophers have written, like Mircea Eliade, and uh, you know, the, the, the theology of, of spiritualizing as an act of transgression. The mercurial jump of Hermes is an act of transgression. <clears throat> and I think that is where spirit comes into play a lot of the time, is in those violations of liminal boundaries. Um, but that's another subject for another time. Jack, do you want to give us uh, what you're up to and talk, tell us more about what you're, uh, you're doing these days and where people can find you? We're just sort of wrapping up and sharing what we're up to. Unless well, you guys want yeah. to just continue on well, forever. I appreciate the chance to, to shill and hawk my wares. <laughs> oh, I'm all about that. I'm all about I'm that. I'm coming up with a course soon called God Song, which is going to be a year of Homer. And so we'll read over the course of 52 weeks. Uh, I'll be reading both uh, the Iliad and the Odyssey and having discussions each week about the spiritual aspects of them, the apprehension of the divine, the epiphanies of the gods, the ways they pray and fight and how they view destiny uh, and, and stuff like that. So I'll be coming out with that. It'll be a new course soon. And hopefully the books so the second edition of my book should have been reach, just reaching uh, the US this week from Finland. So uh, they'll, be, uh, they'll be coming out and I hope to do a class sometime not too far distant to go through some of the rituals of my book and and uh, do the journey of my book for people who are interested in that self-initiation system uh, into the devotion of Fakati that I uh, developed, you know, for, for myself and for anyone interested in that kind of thing. So awesome. that's that's the mischief I'm up to. And anyone you, who wants to if come along that, to that kind of nonsense. Because the, the current edition is sold out, correct? I mean, I, I think I tried to get yeah. it and couldn't. Yeah, it's it's like a guy with an Italian restaurant that seats 15 people. He's like, my place, it only seats 15, but every night I'm a sold out, you know? <laughs> so yeah, <laughs> my place is, uh, yeah, my, my book is sold out, but it, they came up with a second edition and now um, those will be uh, those will be out there as well. It's my publisher is XXR and they're based in Finland. And um, and <laughs> so they, uh, they'll, they'll be, the, the books they publish will be hitting the, the, the States uh, this month. I think so. It's exciting. Awesome. Yeah, yeah I'm I excited. I pre I pre-ordered last year, so I'm like, I'm chomping oh, this, at the bit. Yeah. I'm excited. It was a while, was a while it ago, didn't it? Yeah. 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 Um, <laughs> well, I I owe you lunch. I have a standing offer. Anyone who bought my book, I'll, I'll buy you lunch. So, you know, next time I'm in, there we go. I'm in New Orleans. So. Oh, I think yeah, we're I'll, coming. I'll to, I think we're coming to UFOs. you, buddy. Oh, yeah, the, exactly. Give <laughs> you all a stone's throw from each other. I think. Uh, I think once things open up, you're going to be a little inundated. So hopefully you do have a physical space where uh, uh, all the pilgrim occultists can come and uh, right. worship. Exactly. And we'll take over the state <laughs> capital. That is the yes. plan, right? You, you, all are, <laughs> you all are so close to each other, which is remarkable for so many serious occults. Like here, here in British Columbia, yeah. like we got Chris Bennett, but then we got Frater Yeshi, but there's, there's not a whole lot of other, of other people um and for three of you to be in such a uh, small lesser populated area close together is, is a treat because it means a, a people you guys could put on events and and things and a lot of people can come like i definitely um, i look forward to studying and learning from all of you 
Oh, thanks, what a nice thing to say. Yeah, people don't realize we all live within a mile of each other. So it's been actually- Oh my gosh. <laughs> yeah, we live, we live within a mile of each other. The only other cultist I knew, Bill Duvendock lived in um, in uh, in St. Louis till he moved out to uh, to Poland to be with Asenath Mason. So I knew him, he was an hour and a half away. And then he went three hours north of us is Chicago. And of course, you've got Michael Bertio and Jeff Cullen and uh, and our friends up there. So that's, um, you know, we, we have to go north if we want to hang out with anyone who uh, who's as weird as we are. Yeah, well, I'll see you there, Celeste. We'll just uh, set up. Yeah, we'll and, go, and, we'll go uh, crash the party. Look at some lights in the sky. Yeah. And absolutely. make Jack bring us lunch. We will, yeah. I will. You think yeah, I won't, but I will. <laughs> and then uh, Zemi, you can bring all your people up to British Columbia when you, you're ready for that uh, retreat, peyote retreat with a, you know, we can all lick the toads and uh, <laughs> explore those. Rufus Opus just moved to Seattle. So that means he's like two hours away from where I'm sitting, basically, depending on traffic at the border. The only problem is we can't go across the border and back without going in, you know, the Trudeau COVID jail and paying a fine and all that stuff. So, you know, uh, we are currently as Canadians owned by China, but hopefully some of our freedoms not that we had many will still persist and we can keep interacting with you Americans who are very kind. Like I just spent 14 months in the States and America was like, yep. I was like, anything I need to do to do that. And they were like, like what? And I was like, I don't know. They're like, just go, just go, you know, (laughs) we've always, we've always, people don't realize we've always had a very open border policy with each other. And that's a, that's a, one of those little blessings you don't, you don't uh, hear about too much, but it's something that's, that's definitely awesome. Super awesome. Yeah. And I don't know much about what, what you're doing, Samuel, because I just heard your podcast today and looked at your sites and your book is coming out. You want to tell people about your book coming out? Like, and, so, and hearing what Jack said about it was the best sales pitch because I didn't realize, Jack, you said it very well, that it sounds, sounds awesome. I'm a super big fan. I've always been a bigger fan of the Assyrian and Akkadian uh, things than even Egyptian. I know uh, Damien Eccles is probably going to like freak out over your work because that's actually his main passion as well as even replacing the LBRP uh, archangels with the Syrian gods and stuff. So I think you're, you might have a, a friend uh, and maybe fellow devotee in, in Damien Eccles in case you might have heard of him. Cool, cool, cool. <laughs> well, I, I owe Jack a, a great deal of money for, for that endorsement. So. <laughs> I guess I'll have to sell an internal organ. <laughs> Which one will get me the most money? Hawk, tell them about your book, Sam. Okay. So I was, I'm imagining which organ I could, maybe your, your pineal gland, I could grind my it lungs up, probably. add it into uh, some no, chanda. I need, I need my pineal gland so I can uh, levitate objects with my mind. Um, <sighs> so Rod and Ring, an initiation into a Mesopotamian uh, mystery tradition uh, will be released sometime in June or July uh, through Anathema Publishing. It is pretty much my attempt to codify my own praxis and harmonize the various elements uh, that may not necessarily uh, mesh well uh, when it comes to Sumerian, Akkadian, Babylonian, and uh, Assyrian 
philosophy and, and religious praxis and interpretation. So I'm trying to realize that in a, in a contemporary setting uh, while staying true to the, the spirit uh, of, of the, the historical praxis. So while I am not a staunch reconstructionist, um, I'm definitely someone who wants to contemporize these things while also being true to not just the spirit of it, but also being true to the, the spiritual model and uh, the devotional aspect when it comes to these gods and these spirits. So once that book is printed and in everyone's hot little hands, uh, I'm actually currently working on another manuscript. This one is about uh, the god Dumuzid or Tamuts and uh, his historical worship uh, detractions uh, that were you know, written about by folks like Alexander Hislop and uh, essentially in the same vein as the, the Rod and Ring text, uh, bringing his worship into a contemporary structure, contemporary system while maintaining that devotional aspect, which interestingly enough, uh, he and Ishtar were actually worshiped well into the 18th century in rural parts of Turkey. So it's, uh, it's a, a form of worship. It's a, a religious praxis that's not lost to the distant past. So there are still elements within the last 200 years or so that, that we can look to. Lots of cool stuff. That's awesome. Yeah. Celeste, what's Hello. up? I don't, I don't have a book. Oh, you doing? You don't got once, no book? once again. I put I put out into the universe publishers if you're listening. I did go to writing school. I do have a master's degree. Please, uh, I'm available to talk about things. But um, no, I'm in a, like a, I'm in a weird place in my personal practice. I would say like obviously I make a lot of content uh, online and I do a lot of social media stuff and that's sort of where my attention is focused now in, a, in an outward capacity. But I think like in personal practice, everything is in a, a huge place of expansion at the moment. So I'm sort of developing a, per a personal system um, that's still sort of, it's still in the developmental stage, but I'm doing a lot of work with the concept of catabasis and descent um, formulated around the idea of the cocoon. So I'm doing a lot of sort of metamorphosis work with butterflies and moths. It's very, it's very conceptual at this point, but I'm working on developing a system. Um, and then I'm doing a lot of research and experimentation with marrying sort of paranormal research with the occult and ritual. So I'm doing like, I got a hold of, I got a hold of a spirit box, the, uh, the SB7 spirit box, which essentially is just a radio that cycles through uh, radio channels at a certain, yeah. you know, frequency. Um, but there's a particular way of using the spirit box called the Estes method that was developed by Carl Pfeiffer and a couple other people uh, doing research out of the Stanley Hotel. And you basically put headphones on in the box um, and you have an operator and you have a, a, a receiver. So the operator's in the box with the headphones on and the receiver is outside asking questions. And because you're listening to essentially just static in the box, if you do that in a ritual context, it's very, very easy to slip into a trance state and it becomes sort of mediumship. And there's this sort of group of people or group, different groups of people who are developing this theory that this is a way to initiate contact with spirit or spirits or what have you. 
you got the person outside asking questions. You have the other person in the box listening to the static going into a trance and saying whatever words it, it is that they can pick out of the static, but you can't hear the questions. And you get these transcripts that, you know, in my experience using this over the past couple of months, it's quite uncanny. Um, I did a session a couple of weeks ago now, probably about a month ago, um, and I was in the box and we record all the sessions so you can listen back to them. And at one point, you know, you're saying, you're essentially, you are kind of saying gibberish. You're saying what, what the radio is picking up on. So it's advertisements and sports reports and all that kind of thing. But um, at some point in the recording, I said the word 7.30 and my partner who was asking the questions freaked out and like pulled me out of the box. And he was like, you said 7.30 at the seven minute and 30 second mark on the recording, like exactly as the recording hit seven minutes and 30 seconds, you heard 7.30 in the box and you said it out loud. So, I mean, that's like one example of a lot of very bananas shit that's happened to me in the past wee while, but that's a place that I'm going to in, in my personal practice and uh, my research, so. It's such a fascinating intersection that I think we're only beginning to look at is because, you know, you have all these paranormal people and all these uh, occult practitioners out there and they haven't actually generally intersected. I think that's because the idea of one seemed to discredit the idea of the other. Um, but then yeah. but then there's disconnects that have led to this new area of crossover. Uh, there was this really cheesy thing where they put, uh, you know, Joe Rogan in that room and they were like gauging his energy levels and they went, he went off the chart and they're like, what did you do? And he's like, oh, I did a bunch of like, like uh, you know physical cardiovascular things and like focused and did all this and they're like yeah it went off the chart why didn't they compare that to him not doing it they didn't even right. bother to do that. it's like what are you playing at here i saw this thing so once in a while i watched something on guy just for well i'm fascinated by crop circles actually but i saw this one thing with these globes of light that show up in photographs and one guy said he can focus his conscious consciousness outside of his head and if you take the picture at the right time they did it it showed up as there a it is. light. Well, if yeah. that is possible, it can be tested. And who better to test that than actual people who are sitting there meditating on meditating on a point in space almost every day for like 30 years. They probably uh, are the best bet to have that tested out. And if it can be replicated, that would be fascinating. So I think absolutely. that crossover is just so I think exciting. it's important. And I think it is happening more, which is great. Um, yeah. I know that you I know that you talked recently to Mark this uh, the 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 Thelma Thelma guy, <laughs> Sorry to him. Marco. Oh yes, Marco. Yes. Yeah, Marco Visconti. But he's yes. got a, a patron. Patri he's got a Patreon group of, of people, and he recently ran a uh, spirit box Estes method experiment on his Patreon, uh, for which I was one of the people in the box. I was one of the operators, and the idea of this was that there was a month long ritual preparation involved. He had people who were going to be operators, he had people who were going to be amplifiers, and he had magicians doing all these different things, you know, for a month-long pretty rigorous practice. And the idea was that we were going to try and make contact with some ultra-terrestrial, specifically lamb from, um, from you know, Crowley's, uh, Crowley's writings. Oh. And I have to say that the way that session went down, some pretty, some pretty weird shit definitely happened in that session. Um, and actually, you know, I was thinking about this earlier when y'all were talking because that experience of um, of dread and that visceral like bodily experience, that happened to me during that 
ritual practice inside the box. I had this, this sort of halfway point where I got nauseous and dizzy and I felt like I was being pushed back out of my physical self. Like I was in my brain, but suddenly my body and my brain were way bigger than they usually are. And I was getting shrunk down and pushed back. And I had never really experienced anything like that before. And it got to be so uncomfortable that I was almost gonna pull myself out of the session. Cause I was like, this is terrifying actually. But I pushed, I pushed through it. So um, anyway, that's what I spend my time doing. <laughs> it's fun. <laughs> Yay. Well, we've gone quite a bit over, over the time I, I theoretically <laughs> proposed is the, there's no rules. This is magic without fears, baby. We're just, we're just going with it. Yeah, but if there's anything anyone wants to end on, a favorite quote, a little last thing they forgot about what they're up to, where to find them, this is the time. I'll just, before we do that, I'll say what I'm up to. So I'm doing the podcast, Magic Without Fears, of course. Um, you can go to magicwithoutfears.com to subscribe and get exclusive content, including me doing some rituals on the private members page. And then a bunch of episodes that are extra bonus ones or ad-free or whatever I feel like doing at the time. And that's great support. So thank you all for who are exclusive members. That really does help. It's just a couple bucks. Um, but mainly I'm focusing on teaching on Hermetic Mystery School, uh, hermeticmysteryschool.com. I'll give you guys a little bonus code for discount in the description below. If you want to check out any of my lessons, you viewers who have taken your couple hours to hang out with us, which is awesome. Thank you. Um, my idea behind Hermetic Mystery School was What If Modern Magic by Don Craig, who is a good friend. Uh, rest him and may he rest in peace uh, what if it was multimedia which is what we're able to do now I always I'm a kid of I'm a child of the modern magic book from back in the day and and I thought well what if that could be multimedia but of course I also span the Yeats's Celtic mysteries chaos magic whatever I study um, my love of Haitian voodoo and such but mainly focused on traditional golden dawn techniques and I'm always including updates from the different golden dawn orders that I get whispered to me about developments in technique and original documents and stuff like that. I, I'm a lover of all of those things and, and uh, that whole uh, stuff, but I'm definitely a sort of a psychedelic chaos druid at heart. Thank you for inviting us. It was really wonderful. I appreciate yes, it. Yeah. Thank you so My much. My pleasure, yeah, this, brother. This was rad. My Thank pleasure. You. Jack, Zemi, Samuel, Celeste, you guys are, are lovely. I could hang out with you all forever. The idea of this round table was to, to be less like at an academic conference and more at a, a magical tavern filled with mystical beings. And we're just in the corner over our stout. And well, cheers to that. So there yeah, absolutely. You go. Yeah, maybe <laughs> next time we'll have, we'll, we'll do this in real life, get Justin Sledge to show up and with his absinthe and do it right in person. I don't know. There you go. There you go. Zemi, any chance you want to take us out with a little prayer brother? Um, if I'm not putting you on the spot, because I'm a <laughs> devotee of the same God as you, and uh, and though though I was when I was ordained at the Temple of Isis at Isis Oasis and Fellowship of Isis in Geyserville by 82 year old Arissa Victor last year, I, I chose my patron goddess to be a Nana. So I've got that deep deeply within me as well because uh, I think she's just groovy. She is. Well, everybody That's loves true. Inanna. Inanna, Hikati, oh, Jahuti. These are my these are my homeboys and homegirls. My homies. Right? Dude, you, all of you guys are so cool. I'm so so stoked to be talking with all of you. It's great. <laughs> We're super locked down here in Canada still. Like I, I can't go to a friend's house legally at all. And so it's really great to be able to do this stuff and just thank you. Thank you all sincerely.
No, thank you. This was really, really great. So much fun. Yeah. I look forward to doing these every month. I've already got guests lining up for the next ones. All of you can always come on my podcast anytime, do a future roundtable. I like, I prefer regular guests over strangers, stranger dangers. Um, so uh, Jack, I really hope you and Samuel will do a epic little one-on-one -on -one with me on the podcast sometime soon because I have many questions, just so many questions. Anyway. Well, I think I can be persuaded. <laughs> <laughs> It All won't right. take much. Brother Zemi. Yes, sir. If you if you got a if you got a few words for us, I'm I'm game. Oh yeah, okay. Um give me just a second. I've got a really hard time memorizing things these days, so uh I have to read it. But I got one. Okay. That's very Tahushian as well. Oh, yeah. The God of the written word, right? It's very manic depressive. <laughs> <laughs> That's a mood. Yep. <laughs> okay. I give thanks to the Lord of the Midwest in all ways, at all times, for he is my breath, my voice, and all of that which sustains me. He is the greatest God, the truth speaker. He is the venerable Ibis, great in Hika. He is the path and the strength of my limbs. He is the judge who weighs my heart against all that is and all that will continue to be. Jehuti is my song and my ear, and so I am his song and his ear. I go forth alongside him. Dua Theothi Thothu, the eternal king, Selah. Thank yeah, that's it. Beautiful. Thank you. Good yeah, night, everybody. To tell us, good night. Good night. Have good a good night. night. Bye. Hermetic Science Enterprises is a publishing company based in Scotland, UK, that specializes in Western esoteric printed literature as well as educational videos. With various imprints under its belt, its roster consists of grimoire tradition literature, alchemical works, Golden Dawn tradition books, and the several texts and videos originally belonging to the philosophers of nature. Besides its downloadable videos and standard hardcover edition books, Hermetic Science Enterprises also produces beautiful and precious limited fine edition books that are true pieces of art. For more information to order any of its products, please visit www.hermeticscienceenterprises.co.uk. That's hermeticscienceenterprises.co.uk. And as a lot of you know, I've uh, talked with the publisher Lenny on the podcast before, including a six-hour epic uh, extended version on the Patreon, and uh, seen the fine edition of his new grimoire of Scott's Discovery of Witchcraft, which is only available for purchase up to 50 limited copies uh, till the end of May, I believe. So check it out now, hermeticscienceenterprises.co.uk.